Lord Jesus, we do praise you that absolutely nothing compares with you. So we ask that you'd enable us to catch a glimpse of the truth of that tonight. Lord, the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds a house, the laborers labor in vain. And unless you're at work, a sermon is a waste of everybody's time. So we pray, Lord, that you would do your own work and by your Spirit glorify the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I have to confess that the passage I've chosen tonight is not the most original one to choose on a Mission Sunday, but it is our verse for the year, our topic for the year, our focus for the year, and I think it is a good way to round up this weekend of Mission Focus. And I have noticed the time now, so I am without excuse. Um, If you have your Bibles there, uh, turn to Matthew's Gospel, to the, the end of the Gospel, chapter 28. And reading from verse 16. If you're using Pew Bible, that's page 1001. So Matthew's Gospel, often called the Great Commission, and you you may see a heading to that effect in your Bible. It's worth noticing that the italic thing that says the Great Commission is not part of the original, it's just the translators thought that might be helpful. So these headings are not, not part of the original text at all. So let's read from verse 16. We come, of course, into the story at the end after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, to the very end of the age. Well, this really is, in many senses, the word of the Lord. I guess the first question and I'm sorry, I'm probably repeating some of what Paul has already preached, but it's always good to repeat things. But one of the first questions I thought worth asking is, okay, this is about making disciples. And as Paul explained very well, that is the main, the main thrust, the main imperative of the original text, um, to make disciples. It's just one word in the original, with all nations as the object, if you're into grammar. Um, but what is a disciple? So I thought, well, look up the concise OED, and we have a personal follower of Christ during his life, especially one of the 12 apostles. That may be a little confusing if we're talking about making disciples nowadays, Um, or it's a follower or pupil of a teacher, leader, or philosophy. But I thought it might be useful just to highlight one of the problems which occurs when we start reading scripture. Our English version says, make disciples. But just because we can look up the word disciple in an English dictionary doesn't necessarily mean that that's what Matthew meant by the word that's been translated disciple. Um, And so it's 
essentially it relates to some of what, what Derek was talking about this morning. It's important to look at the context, not just the textual context, but the whole social context in which this text was produced. And in first century Judaism, a disciple was briefly an adherent or a follower who was committed to a recognized leader, teacher, or movement. So it's a bit more probably than just a pupil, somebody who learns algebra. It's to do much more with, with life. Uh, and we know from, from the scriptures that many people had, had um, disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. Uh, so it was a kind of term that they were used to using. So it's important to hook into what that is. It's also worth, worth noting, of course, that um, almost certainly Jesus didn't use the Greek word either. He was probably speaking Aramaic and not Greek. So here we have a translation from Aramaic into Greek and then from Greek into English. So there's scope for all sorts of fuzziness happening there. We sometimes think that translation is comparatively straightforward. This word means that and this word means the same in another language and you just go from there to there. But it's usually more complicated. And the range of meaning that one word has in one language will not necessarily be the same as the equivalent word in another language. So translation, in other words, is a tricky business, and we do need to pray for our translators. In the New Testament, generally, the disciple idea seems to almost become synonymous with Christian as a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's making such followers that is our mission. And it seemed to me that this little passage actually talks about the how of mission and the why of mission. It actually does it in the other order, but being a little bit you know, awkward, I'm going to do it in that order. So next, next slide, thank you. The how of mission. How does it happen? What's the process? Well, we've heard this before. It's by going, by baptizing, by teaching. Let me just uh, recap briefly. Going, I think... Yes, of course it means that, literally. Um, if you want to make disciples in Papua New Guinea or the Philippines or wherever, it's rather difficult to achieve from a distance of several thousand miles. You have to go. And I think we understand that, and we expect that if we send a missionary to work in another part of the world, in another culture, we, we recognize they'll have to learn a completely different way of life, they'll have to learn a different language, understand a completely different culture, and what I think we sometimes don't understand is that in our own cultures in the UK, we also have to go in a sense there as well. Go beyond what our culture might be. Try to understand the cultures of the people out there who don't come to church. Um, there's no point us bemoaning postmodern culture as if it's in, impossibly evil. It's there, it's different. And it's our calling to go and make disciples from postmodern people. So we need to understand what's going on in the cultures of our own country as well. And there's a sense in which that is a kind of figurative going. It means leaving behind our comfort zones and our cherished ways of doing things sometimes. But this mission also happens or progresses by baptizing. And for my purposes, I think it seems almost to be a kind of shorthand for the whole package, the whole process. In, in the New Testament, there's a whole cluster of little events that belong to the beginning of Christian experience. Repentance and faith, baptism in water, and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And these all seem to happen in, in close succession in the New Testament. The order sometimes varies, so it's pretty messy, which is wonderful if you're a postmodern. Um, but it's difficult to, to be tidy about it. But they all seem to belong together. And very interestingly, from quite early in church history, the church has tended to separate these elements from one another. Um, partly, I think, because churches like to be in control. However, I won't get distracted onto that, honest. Um, but it does seem to me that when Jesus talks about by baptizing, it's, it's kind of shorthand for the whole business of bringing people into the fellowship of, of the church, the community of faith, the people of God. And they're brought in not as second-class citizens, but as fellow, fellow citizens with us. Uh, and yes, they've got a lot to learn, and yes, they'll have things to change, but they're part of us. They're brought in through this process of baptizing and you know, repentance and faith and the whole works. And the other element, of course, as we know, is by teaching. Um, the text says, to obey everything I've commanded you. And as I thought about this, I cannot imagine any better way to make disciples of a group of people than to give them God's word in their own language. Otherwise, a missionary is just giving them his opinions or her opinions, but to give them God's word, which by the Spirit begins to do stuff in their lives, is the most amazing thing to do. And I can say this because I'm not a translator, but I just cannot imagine a more glorious gift to give to a people group than God's word. I said I wanted to refer back to the Iduna translation team. These young men in their early 40s, they were not involved in the early days. They weren't involved at all in the original translation. Uh, the guys I was working with, I think one was the son of one of the early guys and one was, is not a son of one of the original translators. If you could live with them for just a couple of weeks as I did, and listen to them talk quite naturally, just chat amongst themselves and, and with me of their experience of the Lord, of, of their prayer life, to hear them pray, to hear them at worship. These are, I, I find so much more inspiring in these guys than I sadly find in myself in many ways and in, in our churches in the UK. It's an example of how God's word given to people begins to transform the whole community. I was telling folk at lunchtime, I, I've never experienced anywhere like Good Enough Island where I feel this is a Christian place. Now, they're not all wonderful people. There are rogues and scoundrels as well. But there's a general sense that this, this is how it is. This is how it's meant to be. And there is God's word to guide us, and we need to take it seriously. And You, know, you don't find that as you walk down the high streets of our cities. So just an amazing example, I think, of the importance of giving people God's word. If we're going to teach them, we need to give them the scriptures in a language they can actually understand. Well, let me press on. Why? The why of mission. If I said, why do we do mission? I wonder what you'd say. I was tempted to actually ask the question for real and see what you said, but I, for, for reasons of time, we, we won't do that. But there are lots of reasons you might come up with. Um, but the reason we're given here at the end of Matthew's Gospel is, is interesting. 
But let's have a look at these guys. The story so far. These men have lived with this itinerant preacher from up north for about three years. They've learned all sorts of amazing things from him. They've seen him do extraordinary miracles. He's raised dead people. He's healed the sick. He's calmed storms. But they've also seen him arrested and flogged to about an inch of his life. They've seen him put to death in the most degrading and humiliating way. And the Romans knew how to do that. It's as though they're saying, this is what, we, this is what the might of Rome does to people who cross us. This is what we do to so-called kings of the Jews. It was intended to and succeeded in being the most awful, ghastly, humiliating, degrading execution. And they'd seen their hero put to death in that way. But here he is, again, he's alive. They really have had what you might call a roller coaster. And so the text says, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's not actually all that clear whether it was some of them who doubted or all of them who doubted. The Greek text isn't entirely unambiguous on that. And I think we can be pretty hard on these guys, the disciples. And to be honest, they, they have asked for it in a way. They're so honest about themselves in the New Testament. They, they don't cover the fact of their ineptitude and their bungles and the fact that they're stupid at times. But they did have a lot to handle. Let me read what Don Hagner says in his commentary on Matthew. He says, It's natural to believe that the eleven disciples would have been in a state of hesitation and indecision. Too much had happened too fast for them to be able to assimilate it. They did not doubt that it was Jesus whom they saw and whom they gladly worshipped. If their faith was too small in measure, that was because they were in a state of uncertainty about what the recent events meant and what might happen next. They found themselves in, he quotes, a situation of cognitive dissonance par excellence. It is precisely this state of mind that is addressed in the words that Jesus speaks to the disciples in the following verses. Jesus' words will accomplish what the sight of the risen Jesus alone could not. You see, it's not that they're, they're unbelieving. Their doubt is a kind of hesitancy. And although what I'm about to say is not a view shared by all of the commentators, some of them disagree with me, the nerve. Um, but I wonder if some of their hesitancy is actually about this whole business of worship. They seem instinctively to want to worship this once dead, now risen, now alive forever, Jesus. Now for us, from our context as Christians, that doesn't seem any big deal. It seems quite natural to us to want to worship Jesus. The problem is these are good Jewish boys. And if they know one thing, they know that there is only one legitimate object of worship, and that is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Not allowed to worship anything or anybody else. That's idolatry. And yet, they feel they need to worship this man who's in front of them. Of course, they're, they're wondering. In their regular prayer life, in the life of the synagogue, they, they use the, the, the Jewish Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's the one you worship, only the one, the only one you worship. 
And Jesus says what seems quite strange to us. He comes to them, comes to them close, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now, he's probably alluding to the passage in Daniel about someone like the Son of Man who comes. Um, But I think there's something even more um, radical in what he says. Because for a Jew in the first century, there is only one being who has all authority in heaven and earth. And that is the God of Israel. And Jesus is saying, well, I've got all authority in heaven and earth. And I think it's as though Jesus is saying, it's okay to worship me because I'm actually included in what you know as the God of Israel. It's okay to worship me. See, there isn't some kind of sudden discontinuity that the disciples have to stop worshiping the God of Israel. No, no, no. They come to realize that this man, Jesus, in some way that it will take the church hundreds of years to to work their way through, is incorporated in the one they know as the God of Israel. So Jesus is really saying, it's okay to worship me because I am God. And because of that, you need to go and make disciples from every nation on earth. And the man who's saying this, the person who's saying this, is the same one that they've seen strung up on a cross in utter humiliation and shame and anguish. But he's alive. He is divine. He's worthy of the allegiance and worship of all nations. So that is the reason they need to go and make disciples. Because nothing else, nothing less than that, is enough. Jesus is so um, magnificent. He is all authority. Therefore, he deserves nothing less than the allegiance of the whole population of the world. And, and it's as if he's saying, look, nothing less than that is good enough. Our English translations mostly, I think, miss something here by saying, um, make disciples of all nations. I always read that as saying, go to all these nations, and out of all these nations, make sure you, you make one or two Christians, one or two disciples. But I think the Greek tends more to the effect that you go to a nation, you make disciples of that nation, and until the whole nation is discipled, then that's not enough. So worship, it seems to me, is at the very heart of mission. And it's because of Jesus himself. It's Jesus who is the primary motivation for, for mission. Right on to the next one, I think, Alistair. Thank you. He's the motivation for mission, but he's also the one who, who owns the mission. It's actually his mission, which is interesting. And that comes through in a couple of ways in the passage and another idea from elsewhere. It's Jesus who says to them, go and make disciples. So it's it's his appointment, his choosing, his sending. So it is his mission. He's involved with them. He says, I will be with you. It's not that he sends them off to get on with it. No, he is with them. I mean, by his spirit, he's ahead of them and it's his mission. Uh, Way back at the beginning of Matthew, we read the famous quotation, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now this, this 
person, this man who has just claimed to be divine is saying, I will be with you, God with us, God with you as you get involved in my mission. Uh, The last little point to make is that not only is Jesus who appoints and sends and the one who is with us in mission, the disciples are his. We're going ultimately not to make disciples of us, but to make disciples of Jesus. Kind of dangerous when when men, and it usually is men, try to gather a crowd of acolytes who who want to clone themselves on him and to begin to almost worship this leader, be it Christian or other kind of religious leader. Something kind of scary and cultic about that. But we are called to make disciples for Jesus. Well, that's fine, but who does Jesus call? Well, first of all, he calls ordinary people this bunch of 11 disciples weren't the most promising group if you'd been going to evangelize the world. They were actually remarkable men, but they seemed pretty unpromising at this point. Uh, Now, just in case you're thinking, well, that lets me off because I'm pretty extraordinary. You know, I have four PhDs and, well, let me assure you that compared to Jesus, you're pretty ordinary. You know, Albert Einstein, compared to Jesus, is ordinary. So this is for all of us, ordinary people, hesitant disciples. These guys didn't have it all worked out. They knew somehow they needed to worship Jesus. They weren't too sure about the doctrine of it. And similarly, Jesus calls us into mission before we've got everything worked out. So for example, we may need to feel him calling us to something and then realize, yeah, maybe I do need to be trained for this. So I need to speak to Derek and Audrey about uh, getting some, some theological education so I'm equipped for the task. So hesitant disciples, not unbelieving, but hesitant, not just not too sure. And most of us are, are, are there at some point or other. But the other people he uses, and they're not exclusive, they, they, they all include one another, he calls worshippers these guys have instinctively learned that they need to worship this once crucified, now risen Lord. And when we catch a glimpse of how amazing Jesus is, it it should be natural that we also want to worship him and serve him and whatever he wants, and to see others worship him as well. Um, He's worthy of the worship of everybody, so we want to see that happen. But what about us? Well, maybe you're not all that excited about who Jesus is. Maybe you are a Christian, a believer, but somehow you're not all that excited. Well, um, ask him to help you in that. The Holy Spirit has a number of, of roles, a number of things he does in us and for us. One of them is to give us an assurance that we are God's children. So we're able to look God in the face and cry, Abba, Father. Um, But the Holy Spirit takes great delight, maybe the greatest delight of all, to glorify Jesus, to make Jesus seem great, amazing, glorious. And he wants to do that for you. So if you're not excited about who Jesus is and what he's done, then ask the Spirit to to give you that kind of buzz about, about the Lord. So you, you, you may have been discouraged by life. You may be 
this illusion by the way Christians behave and we often behave quite badly you may be bored by church frankly I don't actually care too much as long as you don't lose sight of who Jesus is so please don't lose sight of the greatness and goodness of God and the splendor of Jesus but uh, maybe you just basically don't see what all the fuss is about this, this character, Jesus, that the Christians keep banging on about endlessly. Well, can I suggest something? If, if that's you, you owe it to him, and you owe it to yourself, actually, to find out more. So a number of things you could do. I suggest you speak to somebody who is a Christian. You also ought to get yourself down to Christianity Explored at Costa Coffee, Hanover Street, tomorrow evening and start exploring with others who this person is and how you might get to know him. Above all, you need to start reading about this man in, in the Gospels. You might try reading Mark's Gospel or Matthew, Luke, John, and just read it through as, as a narrative, as a story, and, and ask him to, to, be, to become real to you. Try praying. Even if you have to say, I really don't know if you believe, if you exist, but if you do, would you make yourself real to me? And don't be too surprised if you get more than you bargained for. God loves surprises. So try praying. Try finding out more. And join this whole process of being involved in what is Jesus' mission. The mission that he kindly um, graciously allows us to be a part of he, I'm absolutely convinced that he could do this job far better on his own without us um, but it's like a wee boy who's having his bike mended by his dad and his dad allows him to help now the work would actually be done in half the time if the wee lad just kept out of the way but because his dad wants to encourage him and to allow him to be part of things he says, okay, you can help me. And it often seems to me that that is how our relationship with God is. He could actually do things differently and maybe better without us. But he says, look, I love you. I want you to be encouraged and involved in what I'm doing. Come on, and, and you can help me. And that's the kind of encouragement I really want to end this mission weekend on. We, we have an amazing Savior in Jesus more glorious than we even begin to understand and he says to us come on I'm on this mission don't you want to join me and be part of this and we come as ordinary folk all our doubts and hesitancies and wonderings and I haven't quite got that worked out and people who worship him because he's worthy of it indeed he's the only one worthy of our worship let's pray